Good morning, everyone. Find my life and make me smile Because Jesus' love defines me By His grace I live in style Oh, now God looks at me With Jesus' colored glasses at me to Jesus colored glasses I don't need to worry by my past and what I've done for Jesus death redeems me Glasses. Oh, now I'm crucified. I'm dead and buried with Christ. I have been raised and I am seated on high with my accepts me but now he sees me as his son for the spirit joined me to Jesus and now I rest in what he's done oh now God looks at me through Jesus colored glasses looks at me with Jesus colored glasses Oh now God looks at me with Jesus colored glasses Oh now God looks at me with Jesus colored glasses All right, uh, good morning, and uh, could you turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1? I'll be right back with you. Let me hang up the guitar.
And uh, good morning again. You, again, if you haven't turned your Bibles there yet, go to Ephesians. Do it now, please. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And uh, we're going to begin uh, the first of two hours in a study of Ephesians 2.21. We're almost done with the chapter, as you can see. So today, we'll be looking at Ephesians 2.21, which teaches us that the members of the church are fitted inextricably together. And then on when we uh, on uh, Thursday, uh, not Thursday, this Saturday, we're on Thursday already, Saturday coming, we uh, on the 17th, we'll be looking, finishing off the verse by noting the fact that the church is growing into a holy temple by means of fellowship with the Lord. Uh, so this is uh, so we have two classes here in Ephesians two twenty one today and on Saturday, and then next Tuesday and Thursday we'll wrap up our study of, with a two hour study of Ephesians two twenty two and then we so we end the chapter and then as I pointed out last uh, I think last class uh, we're going to take a, uh, a couple of week break I'll be uh, the last class before this break will be uh, Thursday February twenty second and we'll resume our studies on Tuesday March twelfth. So uh, that uh, when we start a new chapter, we'll be looking at starting a new chapter on Tuesday, March 12th with Ephesians chapter 3. So our last class, I'll put this on our website and our Facebook page, but the last class before this break that I'm going to take, it's going to be on Thursday, February 22nd, okay? And then we resume classes Tuesday, March 12th. So I'm, I'm doing that. There'll be another break also, another couple of week break in May. And then actually, uh, when I get to our summer break, it's going to actually be about a, a month and a half long is the way I'm looking at it right now. So, and the reason why I do that is very easily, a uh, very for simple reason is that uh, uh, I'm teaching six times a week. Uh, I, t I teach uh, Tuesday, thir Tuesday, Thursdays, and Saturdays at 11 a.m. Central Standard Time here for Winston Bible Ministries. And then I teach three classes for Doctrinal Bible Church, which I'm the pastor here down here in Huntsville, Alabama. That's why I'm in Huntsville. About, the building's about a half mile down the road. So I teach on a class on Wednesdays there and uh, an hour class. And then on Sundays, I have two sessions. And one starts at 9.30 and the other one starts around quarter of 11, 11 o'clock. And uh, so, uh, and over there, I'm doing uh, uh, Habakkuk on, on Sundays and I'll be doing First Thessalonians, a book we did here a couple of years back, several years back. Um, started it in Iowa and finished it in Massachusetts. So we'll be doing that the next book after Habakkuk and then on Wednesday evenings, we were in a study of uh, the Day of the Lord, which I did way back in my first church plant. But this is, this is going to be a much better study than that one was because I know much more. <laughs> it's like 13 years ago when I studied that. So uh, so basically, the reason why I take the break is because, um, not because the, 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 teaching the lessons is a piece of cake. It's not, it's not, 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 it's not a lot. It's not draining that. It was, what's the big thing is preparing the lessons. So... Um, so I'm, I'm, the book I'm working on, working on right now is Ephesians, the book I'm, I'm we're teaching here now. And I like to keep like four, four or five months ahead, uh, just so, because these things happen, especially when you have two ministries, these things pop up, people die, there's a crisis going on or something. So you get distracted sometimes. So I always like, I don't like to, you know, some guy, I learned from other guys that you don't cram the night before. Some guys I see, they couldn't keep up with the demands of the ministry because they just weren't really, they should be preparing. So I say to guys, if you want you, you know you're going to get in the ministry, well, start preparing the lessons now. That's what I did. So, um, so basically it's for the, the preparing the lessons is, is the work. And then there's other things I'm trying to do too. I'm, I'm always up, updating uh, my articles and, um, you know, my exegesis and exposition, these, the book on Ephesians I'm working on and other, uh, other subjects that I'm upgrading, uh, updating all the time or writing new ones and then I'm trying to write a new collection of music that I have. Uh, I have I've had three songs, this new collection of songs I'm going to do. 
that I have that I want to put on, the, on our websites. But uh, I've done three so far, and I got I need to do uh, I want to do uh, eleven more. So I got another one. It's actually ready to go. I just need to I need to just do the lyrics and the melody. The thing, the music's all set. The arrangement I, I think will be will come with the lyrics. But um, so, anyways, I so I, there's a lot of stuff I like to do, and then also you know maybe have <laughs> relax a little bit. You know, play some golf, especially when the weather's coming. And uh, so I don't uh, I don't really do. Um, I, 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 I pretty much work every day, it seems like. So, which I don't mind. I love what I do. But uh, so again, I take that break. It's not because I, if the, the demands of teaching, it's just the, the demands of preparing lessons, among other things, to, to, keep, to, to keep up. So, anyways, uh, and uh, that's uh, just to keep, I mark that down your calendar. I'll keep announcing that before we take that break. So, we have this uh, next week, is next Tuesday and Thursday, will be our last classes before that two week break. And then we'll, We'll resume classes on Tuesday, March 12th, which happens to be my brother Jimmy's birthday. And also, uh, what else? Uh, we um, That's about it for the announcements. Let's take a moment of silent prayer. Let's get right to it. And um, uh, with uh, we're coming to the end of this chapter, this great chapter in Ephesians. And uh, so let's take a moment of silent prayer. This is our custom. We take a moment of silent prayer to examine ourselves and determine if we're in fellowship with God because any mental, verbal, or overt act of sin that we knowingly commit will cause us to lose fellowship with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But according to 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins to the Father, He, God the Father, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. In other words, He purifies us from each and every wrongdoing. We maintain that fellowship by obeying the Spirit who speaks to us through the Scriptures which He's inspired. And that's when we're obeying the commands of Ephesians 5, 18 to be filled with the Spirit and Colossians 3, 16 to let the Word of Christ richly dwell in our souls. So if there's anything that's bothering you, disturbing and distracting to you, do what 1 Peter 5, 7 says, Cast all your anxieties upon the Lord because He cares for you. So with that in mind, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day that you've given to us. This is another blessing to experience and enjoy creation. And we also fellowship with you, Father, and your Son and the Spirit and other members of the body of Christ that love your word. And uh, I just thank you for the, your faithfulness to this ministry over the years and up to this present moment. The people who have been uh, being uh, supporting this ministry with their prayers and service and, and uh, financial support. I just thank you for each and every one of them uh, in the past and up to the present moment that are uh, actively in this, with, involved in this ministry. I thank you for um, the technology that we can do these things, broadcast live around the world, and just a click of a mouse, we can be somewhere in Pakistan somewhere. And it's just awesome. I pray you would use these, the technology that we have and the various websites and podcasts and media platforms that you've given to us and use them mightily, and I, mightily, and I know you are. And I pray you continue to do that. Thank you for the people who might be joining me live right now with the, the video of the uh, streaming video by YouTube. Thank you for the service that they provide and the people taking advantage of that. And uh, Father, I just I just thank you, Father, for all the logistical grace blessings you've given to us, the food, shelter, and clothing that we take for granted, the, the luxuries that we have in this country. 
And uh, just thank you, Father, for uh, all these blessings that we have and the freedoms that we have in this country. And I lift up our country. I lift up President Biden and his, and his family in the cabinet and uh, the executive judicial legislative branches of our federal, state, and local governments. I pray you give them the wisdom and the moral courage to lead this country and also raise up people who have divine viewpoint, that are godly people that respect your word to influence policy in our country in these different levels of our government. And I pray, Father, for this upcoming election and the candidates and their protection and uh, the protection of the Constitution in this country and uh, protect us from any uh, shenanigans that could uh, undermine it at any point. And uh, I just thank you for, again, the freedoms that we have in this country and the people who are defending us and those freedoms and, and, uh, and, and the enemies outside of our borders and within our borders. I also pray, Father, thank you for the, the blessings we have because we're in union with your son, Jesus Christ. I thank you, Father, for your son's crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, and session at your right hand and giving us the victory over sin and Satan in this cosmic system, delivering us the so great salvation you provided for us uh, through your son and his work on the cross and his resurrection and session at your right hand. I thank you for the fact that he's redeemed us out of your, the slave market of sin in which we were all born physically alive but spiritually dead and reconciled us sinners to to you who are holy and uh, and also propitiated you when he suffered the wrath of God and your wrath on the cross so that we wouldn't suffer it forever in the lake of fire. And I just thank you for that great love that you demonstrated in doing these things and the work of the Spirit in our lives at justification, the baptism of the Spirit and raising us up and seating us with your Son when we were dead in our sins and transgressions. And we thank you for that and we just pray that we'd show our appreciation and love for you for doing those things. And I pray that our love for you which you, we love because you first loved us and your love for us would motivate us to be more and more obedient to you and practice the command to love one another as, and treat e uh, each other in the body of Christ as you've treated us in the past and will uh, treating us now will treat us in the future. And I thank you for the great um, uh, future that you have planned for us and we're going to get a resurrection body at the rapture of the resurrection of the church, which is imminent and rewards for faithful service at the Bama seat. So I just pray, pray that you uh, help us to live each life, each, each of our days on this earth, this day in particular that you've given to us and live, as, live it in light of the imminency of our death or the rapture, whichever comes first. We know that we could go at any time you could take us. So help us to be uh, ready at all times and live with a sense of urgency and not take any day for granted. Uh, I pray for today, by the power of the Spirit, help me to communicate your word with accuracy and clarity, reverence, respect, and power so I can minister to your people and in your unsaved. Help people in the audience that are your children to learn, understand what's being taught, make an application to concentrate. Please break down any barriers that sin and Satan might put up that would hinder that from happening and also help the unsaved, people who are not Christians yet, uh, and help them to understand the gospel at some point so that they make it, can make a decision to either accept or reject your son, Jesus Christ, the Savior. And we know that you desire all people to be saved and come to an experiential knowledge of the truth. I also pray for the recordings. There'll be no problems with the recordings, the video and the audio and uploaded these things to our various websites, podcasts, and media platforms that you've given to us. And I thank you for the streaming service by YouTube. I pray it would function properly, and I thank you for the people taking advantage of that. So we pray for this service in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ's name, your Son, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Amen. You should be at Ephesians chapter 2, uh, verse 1, and we'll read the entire chapter and uh, as we've been doing, and then read my chapter. Uh, my translation of this same chapter and then we'll look at begin to look at verse 21 which again is the first today is the first of two hours in this study of Ephesians 2 21 so we have two more verses to to, to, to complete here 
before we complete, uh, complete the chapter. So today we'll be looking at the first uh, half of the verse, where, which teaches us that the members of the church are fitted inextricably together. We'll talk about what that means. And this will constitute our 127th hour in the book of Ephesians. So uh, if you look at, uh, today we'll read from the Net Bible, the entire chapter. So it says in Ephesians 2, 1, it says, And although you were dead in your transgressions and, uh, and sins, in which you formerly lived according to this world's present path, according to the ruler of the kingdom of the year, the rule of the spirit that is now energizing the sons of disobedience, among whom all of us also formerly lived out our lives in the cravings of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even though we were dead in transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you were saved, and he raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, to demonstrate in the coming ages the surpassing wealth of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you were saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. It's not from works, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, having been created in Christ Jesus for good works, that God prepared beforehand so we may do them. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision that is performed on the human body by human hands, that you were at that time, without the Messiah, alienated from the citizenship of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who used to be far away, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, the one who made both groups into one, and who destroyed the middle wall of partition. Then he says in uh, the hostility. And then he says in verse 15, when he nullified in his flesh the law of commandments and decrees, he did this to create in himself one new man out of two, thus making peace. And to reconcile them both into one body to God through the cross, by which the hostility has been killed. And he came and he preached peace to you, who are far off, and peace to those who are near, so that through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer citizens, foreigners and non-citizens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, because you've been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. And him, the whole building, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Now, before we read the chapter 2 of my translation, couple of things we need to go over for those who might be new to the study. We got new people who come in in the study all the time. Uh, this book was written between 60 and 62 AD uh, while Paul was under house arrest in Rome awaiting his appeal before Caesar. Compare that with Acts chapter 28. Uh, he is uh, He's writing to not only the Ephesian Christian community, but he's writing to the various Christian communities in the various cities and provinces in the Roman province of Asia because this is a circular letter. Uh, we see that uh, Paul is the author. Uh, and uh, he, he, this is not somebody posing as Paul. Paul didn't believe in pseudonymity, as we pointed out, and the early church didn't uh, uh, accept it as well. And we brought out the examples of that. And so we see that the purpose of this book was that the, uh, Paul wanted the unity experientially between the members of the Christian community, and particularly between the Jewish and Gentile wings of the church, to uh, practice the command to love one another in order to maintain that unity experientially that they had with each other, uh, which was brought about uh, in a positional sense at the moment of justification when they trusted in Jesus Christ as Savior, and simultaneously the Holy Spirit uh, identified them with Jesus Christ in his crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, and session of the right hand of the Father. And uh, we see that in a perfective sense, 
uh, there'll be unity between the Jewish and Gentile Christians in a resurrection body at the rapture of the church, which is imminent. But in the meantime, he wanted them to be experiencing this unity, having this unity experientially through the practice of the command to love one another. John 13, 34 and 35 and 15, 12 mentions that command of the Lord on the night he was betrayed. And so we see that uh, this section that we're currently involved in, in Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, is fascinating because Paul talks about this new humanity that's composed of both Jewish and Gentile church-age believers. And so we see that the, the Gentiles, uh, they didn't have the privileges and the, the, uh, the blessings uh, that the, 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 Jewish church, uh, the Jewish wing of the church had. Because as Paul pointed out to us in Romans 3 and Romans 9, 4, and 5, uh, the, and we see in the Old Testament, God gave the law to the Jews. He also, the Savior, would be a Jew. We see that the prom, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were the progenitors of the nation of Israel. And, uh, and we saw that they, God made unconditional promises to them. And the uh, Abrahamic, Palestinian, and New Covenants, and Davidic Covenants. And uh, you know, so therefore, uh, the, the person, Jesus, who's going to rule this world is a Jew. And we see that the scriptures are Jewish on the human side. And so we see that uh, the, these, to whom much is given, much is required. So the Gentiles were never given these things. And so, uh, therefore, in a sense, we were, and we weren't in a covenant relationship with God like the Jews were. So us Gentiles were far away in that sense. And what's caught, what, what caused the, the, the divisiveness or the, the racial bigotry that took place between the Jews and the Gentiles, and there was racial bigotry, the Jews wouldn't have anything to do with the Gentiles and vice versa if they could help it. And we see that um, the hostility was caused by the Mosaic Law. First reason why is that the the dietary regulations of the Mosaic Law uh, would uh, hinder uh, Jews from eating meals with Gentiles because God had said with the dietary regulations that you, there's certain foods you cannot eat, they're unclean. And the reason why he put that restriction on those foods is because those foods that he was restricting for them to eat, not allowing them to eat, were related to the worship of the various pagan gods that the Canaanites were worshiping. So he didn't want them, he was trying to prevent them from getting involved in pagan worship the gods of the pig, uh, the gods of the Canaanites, and they would if they were in going into somebody's home and eating those foods, and uh, so therefore uh, we also see the law was also a cause of uh, consternation and a division between the Jewish and Gentile races because the Jews, uh, uh, many Jews took it the wrong way and were very arrogant to the Gentiles because they were given the law and they thought that they merited it and they didn't, and like all those blessings I enumerated to you. Those were part of God's grace policy, meaning they didn't earn or deserve anything. So us Gentiles were far away, but through faith in Jesus Christ and our union identification with Christ. So justification through faith is one thing. Uh, we know from the Old Testament, uh, Gentiles would be saved and, and we'll, you'll see them in the millennial reign. But uh, we didn't know to the extent in the church age, it was a mystery not known, as we'll see in uh, Ephesians 3, 1 through uh, 13. It was a mystery unknown to Old Testament saints, this doctrine is secret, uh, was real, revealed by Jesus to the apostles and by the Spirit and the New Testament prophets that Jewish believers and Gentile believers would be co-heirs, co-members of the body of Christ and co-partakers uh, of the Messianic promise because they both were justified by faith in Jesus Christ at justification and they were also simultaneously placed in union with Christ and through the baptism of the Spirit identified with Him and his crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, session of the right hand of the Father. So us Gentiles are now united with the Jewish wing of the church. 
and uh, through justification by faith in Jesus and the baptism of the Spirit. So this creates a new humanity. And what's the significance as we've been bringing out about that? Well, remember Adam and Eve, Genesis 1, 26 and 27, as we pointed out, were to rule over the works of God's hands. The writer of Hebrew, Hebrews, who I believe is Paul, chapter 2, says we don't see all things subjected to mankind. And so the reason why that is is because of the fall. Adam and Eve fell in the Garden of Eden. They disobeyed the prohibition to not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Satan was involved in that and tempting her and deceiving her. And so therefore what happened was Satan usurped the authority of Adam and Eve and the human race in the Garden of Eden. And now he's the ruler of this world temporarily. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 makes that clear. We saw the first John 5.19 says the whole world is under his power and he deceives the entire world. Revelation chapter 12. In fact, he actually, uh, in Jesus' temptation, Luke 4, he offered the kingdoms of this world uh, to Jesus if only Jesus would bow down and worship him. And uh, so that wouldn't be a legitimate temptation if he did not have that kind of authority. And he does. So the first step in restoring human beings as the rulers of, of the, over the earth is Jesus Christ, the last Adam. And through his crucifixion, death, and burial, and resurrection, and session at the right hand of the Father, when he seated, sat down at the right hand of the Father, uh, which was predicted in Daniel 7, 13, 14, when he sat down, the Son of Man uh, came up to the Ancient of Days and received a kingdom. He has now, Jesus, and we see this in Revelation 5, he has the title deed to planet Earth. That's in the form of the seven-seal scroll of Revelation 5. And so uh, that means he has the title deed to planet Earth. And right now, during the church age, which is its ending could be at any time it's imminent uh, with the resurrection of the church, the rapture of the church. But during the church age, starting in June of 33 AD, and the city of Jerusalem, as recorded in Acts chapter 2, God's been placing uh, uh, members of the human race who trusted in His Son, Jesus Christ, in union with His Son, Jesus Christ, and identifying them with Him and, uh, and as the next step in building a bride for His Son that's going to reign with Him during the millennial reign and so, the, 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 in Acts chapter 10, uh, Cornelius, the first his, uh, his, him and his family were Gentiles, and they believed in Jesus. Peter gave him the gospel, and uh, he had to be told in a vision it was all right to go into the guy's home because he was a Gentile. And uh, so he, he went in, there, and the Gentiles received the baptism of the Spirit like the Jewish believers. And so there was something new going on, and Paul talks about this in Ephesians chapter 3. And God is creating in chapter 2 of Ephesians. And he created a new humanity between the two races who are in union with Christ now. And so when we come back with Christ at the second advent, his bride, the church, we're going to not only um, defeat Antichrist and the false prophet and the tribulation armies, but we're going to dispossess Satan and the fallen angels as the rulers of this earth. And this is why the, the Satan wages war against the church. Ephesians chapter 6, 10 through 18, we'll say. So you're a marked man or a marked woman. And if you're teaching this stuff, you're a marked person, okay? So that's why we should be praying for each other. And it doesn't matter if they don't belong, if they don't, if they belong to your local assembly or not. I pray for Christians I've known for years. I haven't seen them in years, or they belong to other churches. I know of them, and I still pray for them in their churches. So it's irrelevant. We're all members of the same team. We might might not always act that way, but we are. So we see that this is a fantastic book and a fantastic chapter that we're engaged in and we're almost finished with. So let's look at it with that out of the way, that a little bit a brief synopsis of what we've been covering so far and a background to this chapter in this book. And uh, let's look at Ephesians chapter 2 in my translation now. So it says in Ephesians 2.1, Now correspondingly, even though each and every one of you is a corporate unit, 
We're spiritually dead ones because of your transgressions. In other words, because of your sins, each and every one of you formerly lived by means of these in agreement with the standard of the unregenerate people of this age, which is the production of the cosmic world system, in agreement with the standard of the sovereign ruler, namely the sovereign governmental authority ruling over the evil spirits residing in the Earth's atmosphere, specifically the spirit who is presently working in the lives of those members of the human race who are characterized by disobedience, that's the unbeliever, among whom each and every one of us in the Christian community also, formally, for our own selfish benefit, conducted our lives by means of those lusts which are produced by our flesh, specifically by indulging those inclinations which are produced by our flesh. In other words, those impulses which are the product of our flesh, the sin nature. Consequently, each and every one of us caused ourselves to be children who are objects of wrath because of our natural condition from physical birth, just as the rest correspondingly caused themselves to be children or objects of wrath because of their natural condition from physical birth. But because God is rich with regards to mercy, because of the exercise of his great love with which he loved each and every one of us, even though each and every one of us as a corporate unit was spiritually dead ones because of our transgressions, he, the father, caused each and every one of us in the Christian community to be made alive together with the one and only Christ. Each and every one of you Gentiles as a corporate unit are saved because of grace. Specifically, he caused each and every one of us as a corporate unit, both Jew and Gentile believers, to be raised with him. Correspondingly, he caused each and every one of us as a corporate unit to be seated in the heavenlies. And here's how, because of our faith in and union and identification with Christ Jesus. I've been pointing out, you have in Christ Jesus in your Bible, and that's Paul is actually using shorthand. And his readers would understand what he's been teaching and he would understand that that prepositional phrase is shorthand for our faith in Jesus at justification and our union identification with him through the baptism of the Spirit. And how do I know that? Because if you read Paul's writings in Romans 6 and Colossians 2 and 3, and uh, we see that it, it, we're, we're identified with Christ in his death and resurrection and session at the right hand of the Father because of our faith in Jesus at justification, because at that moment, through the baptism of the Spirit, we're identified with Christ in His death and resurrection and session of the right hand of the Father. That's why. So verse 7 says, He did this. Why did He do this? He did this so that He could, basically to show us off, He could display for His own glory during the ages which are certain to come, the incomparable wealth, which is the product of His grace, because of kindness, for the benefit of each and every one of us. What's the reason? Same reason as before. Because of our faith in and union and identification with Christ Jesus. Each and every one of you is a corporate unit are saved because of grace by means of faith. In other words, this salvation never originated from any one of you Gentiles as a source. It, it originated as the gift from God. It never originated from meritorious actions as a source so that a person cannot for their own benefit enter into the state of boasting. Verse 10, for each and every one of us are his creative workmanship. For each and every one of us in the Christian community, both Jew and Gentile, has been created by means of our faith in and union and identification with Christ Jesus in order to produce actions which are divine good. These God prepared in advance so that each of us would conduct our lives by means of them. Then we have verse 11 says, therefore, and that therefore is telling us that what's about to be said by Paul is an inference from the first 10 verses of the chapter. So therefore, each and every one of you as a corporate unit must continue to make it your habit of remembering that formerly each of you who belonged to the Gentile race with respect to the human body 
specifically those who receive the designation uncircumcision, by those who receive the designation circumcision with respect to the human body performed by human hands. Each, every, each and every one of you in the Gentile Christian community, before your justification, used to be characterized as without a relationship with Christ. Each of you used to be alienated from the nation of Israel's citizenship. Specifically, each of you used to be strangers to the most important promise, which is the product of the covenants. That's the messianic promise. Each of you used to not possess a confident expectation of blessing. Consequently, each one of you used to be without a relationship with God in the sphere of the cosmic world system. Now, as we pointed out in last class and previous classes, when he, uh, verses 1 through 3 and verse 12 are describing the pre-justification uh, condition of, gen of the Gentile Christian community, you and I. And we saw in the first three verses of the chapter, we were enslaved to sin and Satan as cosmic system. And in verse 12, we would see that we were far from the God and the Jewish people, and in particular the Jewish remnant in the church that were believers. Then it says in verse 13, and like verse 4, uh, we have now a contrast uh, in verses 13 through the rest of the chapter uh, with the, the which talks about their post-justification condition. And uh, now we're having a contrast with their pre-justification condition here uh, in this uh, in this section now, starting in verse 13, just like we had in verses, uh, the contrast between the pre-justification or pre-justification condition of the, of the recipients of this letter in verses 1 through 3 is contrasted in verses 4 through 10 with their post-justification condition, being in union with Christ, in other words. So it says in verse 13, however, because of your faith in, in, in union and identification with Christ Jesus. Each one of you, as a corporate unit, he's speaking of the Gentiles, who formerly were far away, have now been brought near by means of the blood belonging to the same Christ. For he himself, Jesus Christ, personifies our peace. And as we'll see, it's a double reconciliation, where both groups were reconciled to God, and both groups were reconciled to each other. For he himself personifies our peace, namely, by causing both groups to be one, specifically by destroying the wall, at speaking of the law, which served as the barrier, that is that which caused hostility, and that's between the two races with each other and the two races with God. In other words, by nullifying, by means, excuse me one sec, I hit the, I hit a, hit the wrong, I didn't want to hit that, but it brought up my dictionary, sorry about that. In other words, by nullifying by means of his human nature, the law composed of the commandments, consisting of a written code of laws, in order that he might cause the two to be created into one new humanity. How did he do this? By means of faith in himself at justification and union identification with himself through the baptism of the Spirit at justification. Thus, he, Jesus Christ, caused peace to be established. And again, that's between the two races with each other and the two races with God. Then we have in verse 16, Paul explains what he just said in verse 15 a little further. In other words, in order that he would reconcile both groups and a one body to God through his cross. Consequently, he put to death the hostility caused by the law between the two races with each other and the two races with God. What was the means he did this? It was by means of faith in himself, the justification, and union and identification with himself through the baptism of the Spirit. Again, the figure of autonomy is being used where faith in Christ at justification and our union and identification with him through the baptism of the Spirit are not put explicitly down there by Paul because he's using shorthand with this prepositional phrase. So the person of Christ is put for faith in him at justification and union identification with him through the baptism of the Spirit. Then we have verse 17. 
He says, correspondingly, he as a result came proclaiming peace for the benefit of each and every one of you. Namely, those who are far off, likewise those to peace, uh, likewise peace to those who are near. Consequently, through the personal intermediate agency of himself, each and every one of us as a corporate unit, namely both groups, are experiencing by means of the omnipotence of the one spirit to the presence, they're experiencing access, excuse me, by means of the omnipotence of the one spirit to the presence of the Father. Indeed, therefore, each and every one of you as a corporate unit are no longer foreigners to the covenants of promise, that is, foreign citizens, but rather each and every one of you as a corporate unit in the Gentile Christian community are fellow citizens with the saints, that is, members of God's household. Why? Because each and every one of you as a corporate unit have been built upon the foundation, which is the communication of the gospel, to each one of you by the apostles as well as prophets. Simultaneously, he himself, namely Christ Jesus, is the cornerstone. And then we have in verses 21-22, on the basis of its being continually fitted inextricably together by means of justification by faith and in union identification with him, the whole building is growing into a holy temple. And how? By appropriating by faith union and identification with the Lord. In other words, by appropriating by faith your union and identification with him, all of you without exception are being built together into God's dwelling place by means of the omnipotence of the Spirit. So you can see in verses 21-22, and we'll develop this, is that the basis for our fellowship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and each other is our justification by faith and our union identification with Christ. So that's the foundation for our fellowship. And our fellowship is basically experiencing our union identification with Christ through faith and God's word, and in particular, considering ourselves dead to the sin nature and the cosmic system of Satan, alive to God. And, uh, and so uh, that's, that's, and that will manifest itself in obedience to the various commands and prohibitions of Scripture, this faith, this post-justification faith. So we see now he's starting to talk about something that's taking place now, the growth the spiritual growth of the members of the body of Christ and, and in relation to each other. So he's now kind of moving into the, uh, the stage that talks about the spiritual life for the first time. He's just giving us a little taste of it right now, but he really goes into detail uh, in verses uh, chapters 4, 5, and 6, which actually presents the application of the first three chapters. In other words, the imperatives are, of, the, of the book are found in the, in the last three chapters. The indicatives are found in the first three chapters. The imperatives uh, explain what's the implication of the indicatives of the first three chapters. And very, very important, and we'll continue to bring this out. So, we see that, if you look at my notes on the board, Ephesians 2.21 is composed of the following. It's, it's composed, first of all, of a causal, participial clause, and then we have, following it, a declarative statement. Now, the, the causal participial clause is, in the, in the Greek text, en ho pasa akoidome soon aramologu mene, which is translated by myself on the basis of its being continually fitted inextricably together by means of its union identification with him. The declarative statement which follows it is auxe eis naon hagion en curio, which I translate, the whole building is growing into a holy temple by appropriating by faith your union identification with the Lord. Now, if you look at the Net Bible, the translation of, of these two clauses is considerably shorter. That's because I'm making explicit what's implied by the prepositional phrases which begin and end the verse. So we see that the, um, the, the 
as we pointed out before, the causal participial clause uh, is uh, in in the um, in the Net Bible is translated in Him. The whole building being joined together. The declarative statement says is grows into a holy temple in the Lord. That's how they translate these two clauses. So we have a causal participial clause, which is enho pasa okorame soon aramo lagu mene on the basis of its being continually fitted inextricably together by means of its union identification with him. The declarative statement, auxe ace naon hagion and curio, which again I translate, the whole building is growing into a holy temple by appropriating by faith the union identification with the Lord. So we're going to look at the causal participial clause today. And that, and that presents the basis or the reason why for the declarative statement which follows it. Therefore, Paul asserts that the members of the Christian community are growing experientially into a holy temple by means of fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ because or on the basis that they are being continually fitted inextricably together and the means by which that's happening is by means of justification by faith and union identification with the Lord Jesus Christ. So thus this verse, verse 21, teaches that the church age believers fellowship with the Lord is based upon their union and identification with him. And without the latter, there could be no former. Okay? Let me repeat this. Ephesians 2.21 teaches that church-age believers' fellowship with the Lord is based upon their union and identification with him. And without the latter, there could be no former. And this interpretation is indicated by, uh, that is, is indicated by the fact that this assertion is bookended by the prepositional phrases and ho and en curio. And ho is translated, uh, I think, by the Net Bible in him. And en curio is translated in the Lord by the Net Bible. I think most translations do that. However, I translate it again with, uh, I interpret it as containing, like all those prepositional phrases where Christ is the referent, I'm interpreting it as having the, the figure of metonymy there. And again, I'm not the only one who thinks this. They might not think of both these things like I do, but most of them think it's alluding to our union identification with Christ. In fact, I could show you, uh, I think I've been using one of these translations for uh, every now and then, the New Living Translation. I think they do, let's say, they say, uh, no, they don't use, they have, they use, sometimes they say union with Christ. Uh, where is it? They use it up here somewhere. Well, anyways, uh, we're, you notice how he says carefully joined together in him. So they don't really bring that out. Let me see. It's, uh, they, I know they haven't mentioned it before there, the union with Christ. Let me see. I think maybe, maybe Good, good News Bible. They, oh, see here? Um, am I good or what? But look at verse, they don't do it in verse 21, but they do it in verse 22. In union with him, this is the Good, new, good News Bible, in union with him, okay? So you could, you, you could uh, most exposes, a lot of people know this anyways, that have been studying Paul, he uses shorthands with these, these in Ephesians with these prepositional phrases and, many, and, and much of his writings pretty much. Uh, in Christ, in him, in Christ Jesus, in the beloved as we saw in chapter one of Ephesians. It's, it's, somehow, it's, it's alluding to our justification by faith in Jesus Christ and what took place simultaneously at our justification which is our union identification with Christ. You know, Paul says in Colossians 2 and 3, you see it in Romans 6, uh, you're, we're crucified, died, buried, raised, and see with Christ. And where you, God looks at us as he looks at it, as Jesus in those events. We're tied to the, we're identified with Jesus in those events in his life because those events in his life provided us our so great salvation and sanctification. That's why. And we're under his headship now. 
and we're part of the new humanity. So everything he is, we are, in other words. So when Paul uses the figure of autonomy here in verse 21, and he uses it in verse 22 as well, and we've seen it, he's used it in previous verses. And ho, and him, actually means by means of our union identification with him. And curio, which ends the verse, is translated by myself by appropriating by faith your union identification with the Lord. And together they bookend this assertion. Now, I notice I say by appropriating by faith your union identification with Christ because we're talking about the spiritual growth now. We're not talking about justification. Now we're talking about post-justification faith and appropriating by faith our union identification with the Lord. Paul talks with, says what that is, considering ourselves dead to the sin nature and alive to God, Romans 6. Okay, So very important, pretty cool what he's doing here. So together... Uh, we see they, these uh, these two prepositional phrases emphasize this spiritual principle. So go back here to my point here. In Ephesians 2.21, if you compare it with what he just said in verse uh, 20, Paul's asserting in verse 21 that the members of the Christian community, both Jew and Gentiles, are, are growing, present tense, experientially into a holy temple by means of fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ because on the basis that they're being continually fitted inextricably together by means of justification by faith and union identification with Jesus Christ. Thus, this verse, verse 21, teaches that the church-age believers' fellowship with the Lord is based upon their union identification with Him. Why? Because without our union identification with Christ, that justification, we could have no fellowship with Him. And that interpretation, again, is indicated by these two prepositional phrases which bookend this assertion. And ho, by means of its union identification with Him, and curio, which is translated by myself, by appropriating by faith, your union identification with the Lord. So together they emphasize this spiritual principle. Now, as we noted in our study of Ephesians 2.19, Ephesians 2.20 and 22, 2.22, like the former, contains a metaphor. So in each of these verses, 19, 20, 21, and 22, Paul's using metaphors, and he uses a lot of different types of great metaphors in his writings to describe our relationship with Jesus Christ. You know, we're uh, into God, the Father, and the Spirit. You know, where you know, you, metaphors like uh, vine, I'm the vine, you're the branches, uh, cornerstone of the building we just saw, and uh, where uh, stones of the building, you know, Peter uses that one. Um, we see that uh, he's, the, we'll see in Ephesians, he's the bridegroom, we're the bride, and we'll see that in Ephesians chapter 5. So there's a lot of, uh, a lot of these metaphors that Paul's used uses to show how inextricably tied we are to Jesus Christ and the Father and the Spirit. So in the former, as we pointed out in our previous classes, in Ephesians 2.19, Paul employs the two employs two metaphors to describe Gentile Christians, not only in relation to the Jewish Christian community, but in relation to every believer and every Old, Dispensa Old Testament dispensation in the past. The first metaphor, as we pointed out, is that Gentile Christians are citizens in a city, and the second is that they're members of a family. So he uses, as we pointed out, these two metaphors in order to emphatically emphasize that they are sharing equal status in the kingdom of God with Jewish believers in past Old Testament dispensations and with those believers who lived in the dispensations before the establishment of the nation of Israel. In other words, Paul is stating in emphatic terms here to the Gentile Christian community that they are by no means second-rate citizens. And so, therefore, we can see that these two metaphors present an emphatic contrast between the unregenerate state of these Gentile church-age believers and their present regenerate state as justified sinners who are in union with Jesus Christ and identified with Him 
and his crucifixion, his death, his burial, his resurrection and session at the right hand of the Father. So, I pointed this out in previous classes. You and I as Gentiles in the church, we really take this for granted because if you lived in the first century, the Gentiles would be flabbergasted. We take it for granted because for 2,000 years, the church has been primarily Gentile. Okay? And early on, it was, it was Jewish. Okay? So, we don't really understand this because we need to be taught this in the church because it will cause us to be, uh, prevent us from being arrogant toward the Jews and, and think we're better than them. And it would also, it, it would give us a, 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 an express, a, it would instill in us an attitude of gratitude for what God did for us Gentiles. Because Gentiles before the church age, even if they believed in the God of Israel and became proselytes, they didn't, they were not, they were second-rate second citizens, okay? But during the church age, that is not the case, okay? This is what Paul's trying to tell us. So here in the 21st century, as I said before, the church has been primarily Gentile for 2,000 years, so we, do, we don't really think that's a big deal. We don't really look at it the way we should. What's up to the pastors in America and around the world to, to bring these things out and to teach this stuff? Because we need to know this as Gentiles. Uh, because it, it instilled in us as I said, an attitude of gratitude for what God did for us and uh, through our faith in Jesus at justification and our identification with Him. So we're not second-rate citizens, Paul's saying. So now, we come to a fee, we, we, we looked in our last class, we finished off on uh, Tuesday, in Ephesians 2.20, Paul employs a building metaphor, and specifically a temple metaphor, in order to describe the church. And so he continues to do this in verses 21 and 22 to develop this temple metaphor. Now, in Ephesians 2.21, at our verse today, the referent of the relative pronoun host is Jesus Christ. Now, in the Greek text, for those who are interested, the very beginning of the verse, enho pasa, enho, that whole there is the relative pronoun. It's the relative pronoun host. I hit that button again. I don't know why I keep doing that. But anyways, there it is. I was trying to point it out. It's a relative pronoun. It's in the dative case, okay? And uh, we see that this particular word its referent is Jesus Christ. And he's the referent here with the word curio at the end of the verse. If you see, I have highlighted it. Of course, I know you don't know Greek unless you, you do know Greek. But uh, there it is. So we have here, we see that in Ephesians 2.21, this referent that, of the word uh, host uh, is Jesus Christ. And it contains the figure of autonomy, again, which means that the person of Jesus Christ is put for justification by faith and in him and union identification with him and his crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, session of the right hand of the Father. How do we know this? Well, it's clearly indicated by the fact that the members of the body of Christ, both Jew and Gentile believers, are being continually, inextricably joined together through the baptism of the Spirit the moment the Father declared them justified through faith in his Son, Jesus Christ, by placing them together in union with his Son. And the Spirit also identified them with his son in his crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, session at the right hand of the Father. So this is what Paul talks about, this identification. In Romans 6, he talks about it in detail there. He talks about it in Colossians 2 and 3. And we just saw it in Ephesians chapter 1. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses, which verse 6, we're raised in seed with Christ. Okay, that's how God looks at us, raised in seed with Christ. We're not there yet, okay, but we are. That's how he looks at us. Why? Because we're under the headship of Christ, the last Adam. And we're members of his body. And he's the head. You getting it? This is how close you are to God. 
this is, you know, this is the relationship that's the most important thing in your life as a believer. You know, we make too much of human relationships and they're a blessing, okay? But we all let each other down, husbands, wives, friends. It, you know, that's just the way it is. Family members, we've let each other down. But God will never let us down. And the most important relationship we have is not a relationship with our family. It's really in the natural realm. Or our wife or husband. It's actually, unless they're believers, it's actually because it's our relationship with Christ through the baptism of the Spirit. And so this is something that Paul's really emphasizes in his writing. So um, I take it, let, well, let's see, let's, let's go, um, let's go to Romans chapter 6. We'll go there quickly. We can do that. So look at Romans chapter 6. We got time. Look at Romans chapter 6, verse 1. Come on. Oh, and I just blew it away. That's weird. I just bumped my Logos program off. I haven't done that ever since I've been doing this online. We'll have to load it back up. That's so weird. I never did that before. I'm getting a little little lousy on the on the on the on the uh, the mouse thing here. Okay, hold on one sec. Call up today's class. So let's go to Romans. I gotta find where my place was. Okay. All right. So again, back to my point. In Ephesians two twenty one, the in him at the beginning of verse two twenty one. The referent is Jesus Christ, and it contains the figure of metonymy, which means that the person of Jesus Christ is put for justification by faith in him and union identification with him. And that's indicated by the fact that the members of the body of Christ are being continually fitted, in, fitted inextricably joined together through the baptism of the Spirit the moment the Father declared them justified through faith in his Son. And Jesus Christ, he did this by placing them together in union with his Son. So again, this is indicated by the fact that the members of the body of Christ are being continually inextricably joined together through the baptism of the Spirit the moment the Father declared them justified through faith in His Son, Jesus Christ, and He did this by placing them in, together in union with His Son. And the Spirit also identified them with His Son in His crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, session of the right hand of the Father. So let's look at Romans chapter 6, verse 1. So we got back to where we were. Okay, Romans 6, 1. Romans 6, 1. What then shall we say? Are we to, to remain in sin so that grace may increase? Absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? How do we die to sin? When did that happen? Or do you not know that as many as were baptized into Christ Jesus? No, there's no water there. It's Baptized means identified with. It's, not the fig, it's the figurative use of the word, not the literal. It means identified with Christ Jesus. We're baptized or identified with him in his death. See, that's our identification with Christ in his death. Therefore, we've been buried with him. Is our identification with him in his burial. Through baptism, the spirit baptism and our justification into death. Why? In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, through the glory of the Father, so we too may live a new life. For if we become united with him in the likeness of his death, and we have, we certainly will also be united in the likeness of his resurrection. This is our identification with Christ in his resurrection. That guarantees us a resurrection body. We know that our old man was crucified with him so that the body of sin would no longer dominate us, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For someone who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we die with Christ, and the first class condition is like, and the Greek is like, if, and let us assume it's true for the sake of our, you've died with Christ, and we know that you have, because I taught you this. Okay? 
So that's our identification with Christ and his death. He says, we believe that we'll also live with him because we're, raised, we're identified with him in his resurrection, guaranteeing us a resurrection body. We know, verse 9, that since Christ has been raised from the dead, he is never going to die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. For the death he has died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Now, here's the application. Here's how you appropriate by faith your union identification with Christ. And you go this. He just says this. So you too, consider yourselves dead to sin. Why? Because you die with Christ. But alive to God in Christ Jesus. Why? Because you're raised with Christ and seated with Christ. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires. And do not present your members to sin as instruments to be used for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who are alive from the dead because you've been raised and seated with Christ. And your members of, to God as instruments to be used for righteousness. For sin will have no mastery over you because you are not under law, but under grace. Okay? So now look at Colossians chapter... Oh, let's Colossians chapter 2. And let's start at verse 8. Colossians 2, 8. Great book. We did this in Marion, Iowa, oh, almost seven, eight years ago, maybe now. Time flies when you're having fun. I can't remember what year it was. I remember doing it, but Colossians 2, 8. Paul writes, be careful not to allow anyone to captivate you through an empty, deceitful philosophy that is according to human traditions and the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. For in him, all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. You have been filled in him, who is the head over every ruler and authority. In him, you are also circumcised. Not, however, with a circumcision performed by human hands, but by the removal of the fleshly body, that is, through the circumcision done by Christ. Having been buried with him, and baptism, there's your identification with Christ in his burial, You've also been raised with him. There's your right uh, with him through the uh, through your faith and the power of God who raised him from the dead. So there's your identification with Christ and his resurrection. Verse 13, even though you were dead in your transgressions and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he nevertheless made you alive together with him, having forgiven all your transgressions. See this phrase, made you alive together with him? We see that in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5. And he goes on to describe what he means by that in verses verse 6 of Ephesians 2, if you recall where he says you've been made alive together with Christ because, and specifically by being raised and seated with him. And then it says in verse 14, he has destroyed what was against us. And that's the law again. Sounds very following the pattern of Ephesians 2. He has destroyed what was against us, a certificate of indebtedness expressed in decrees opposed to us. He has taken it out of the way by nailing it to the cross. Just like he said in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14, uh, 13, 14, 15, and 16. Disarming the rules and authority, Satan's kingdom, he has made a public disgrace of them triumph overing them by the cross. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you with respect to food or drink or in the matter of a feast, a new moon, or Sabbath days. These are only the shadow of the things to come, but the reality or the substance of reality, we could say, is Christ. Let no one who delights in humility and the worship of angels pass judgment on you. That person goes on at great lengths about what he has supposedly seen, but he's puffed up with empty notions by his fleshly mind. So he's talking about the Essene branch of Judaism that was infiltrating that area and, inf and uh, the, the Colossian Christian community and the Christians in the Roman province of Asia were being exposed to it. It's an early form of Gnosticism they were involved in. And it's another thing, of course, uh, the misapplication of the law. And it says, He has not held fast to the head from whom the whole body supported and knitted together through its ligaments and sinews grows with a growth that is from God. If you've died with Christ, first class condition says you have, and to the elemental spirits of the world, Satan's cosmic system, 
Why do you submit to them as though you lived in the world? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These are all destined to perish with you as founded as they are on human commands and teachings. Even though they have the appearance of wisdom, with their self-imposed worship and false humility, achieved by an unsparing treatment of the body, a wisdom with no true value, they in reality result in fleshly indulgence. Now, no chapter break in the original. Look what he says in Colossians 3, 1 through 5. Therefore, if you've been raised with Christ, first class condition means if and let's assume it's true for the sake of argument, that you've been raised with Christ, and they would agree with him because he was ta- they were taught by taught that by Epaphras, their pastor. Keep seeking the things above. That's the inference, the apotheosis, where Christ is. See the right hand of God. Keep seeking the things above, not on not things on the earth. For why? Why should you not do this? For you've died with Christ through your identification with him in his death, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You've been raised with Christ. You identify with him in his resurrection and session. When Christ is your life appears at the rapture, then you too will be revealed in glory with him. Why? You've got a resurrection body. How come you're going to get that? You're guaranteed a resurrection body because you've died with Christ and been raised with Christ. Then here's the application like he did in Romans 6. So put to death whatever in your nature belongs to the earth, sexual immorality, impurity, shameful passion, evil desire, greed, which is uh, idolatry. So he's doing the same thing he did in Romans 6. How do you put to death uh, whatever in your nature belongs to the earth? Sexual immorality, impurity, sinful passion, evil desire, greed, which is idolatry. He tells us in Romans 6, verse 12, so you too consider yourself dead to sin nature. Why? Because you died with Christ, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So you see what he's saying? Adopt the view that God has of you. Okay? The people will remind you of that you're a sinner. You'll see that when you every day when you, you get up in the morning, okay, and do something or say something, or you think something. But God looks at you as he looks at his son. And so, in other words, do Jesus colored glasses. Okay? And uh and it doesn't mean you're the second member of the Trinity. It just means that he's the head, you're the members of his body. And he's the, the he's the um, the last Adam that's going to rule over this earth for a thousand years and on to eternity, and we're his bride. Okay, We're inextricably tied to him and the Jewish wing of the church that's believed in Jesus as well, just like us. So, go back to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 21, and we'll close. Now, at the very end of the verse, look at Ephesians 2.21. We see, it says in Ephesians 2.21, in him, and that's, in other words, uh, it's because of our union identification with Christ and, and through the baptism of the Spirit of justification that the whole building is being joined together. So that's talking about actually the, the church adding numerically, being added to numerically. But now we have character-wise, uh, spiritual-wise. It grows into a holy temple, and it says, and what's, what's how? In the Lord. And as you saw in my translation, if you recall, and I'll bring it back up here for us to see, in Ephesians 2.21, I say, in verse 21, on the basis of its being continually fitted and inextricably together by means of justification by faith and unite identification with Him, the whole building is growing. Notice it's growing. It's a present tense. It's something that's going on now. It's growing into a holy temple. How? It, we grow spiritually and as a corporate unit by appropriating, by faith, union identification with the Lord. So that last prepositional phrase, and here it is in the Greek text, and uh, in Ephesians 2.21, see, and curio. It ends the verse, it's bookending this, this, this assertion here, and we see, and ho at the beginning, which is also speaking of our union identification with Christ, that serves as the, uh, in our union identification with Him and our justification, that's the basis 
for Paul's assertion here. And the means by which this is growing, this temple, is our union identification with Christ, and specifically by appropriating by faith our union identification with Christ, which I told you how to do. And many of times in the past, unless you're new to the ministry. So the, the relative pronoun, uh, host, is the object of the preposition N, which functions as a marker of means. And this indicates that by faith in and union identification with Jesus Christ is the means by which church-age believers are fitted or, or inextricably connected together to form a coherent whole. Uh, the word Lord, I, I have relative pronoun here, it's actually curios, uh, curios. And that's, uh, it shouldn't be host there. Host is where it's back up here at the beginning of the verse. And there it was a cause, marker of cause. At the end, it's a marker of means. Context determines the semantic uh, usage of the word. Well, let's wrap it up here. Let's, let's talk about this, what we just uh, summarize, what we just have here. All right. Uh, Paul's talking about the new humanity composed of Jewish and Gentile believers. Significant thing has happened. Uh, it was a mystery not known to Old Testament saints as was, that this would happen, uh, as we see in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. And uh, the, con uh, the content of the mystery, the divine secret, was that was not known to Old Testament saints is that Gentile church-age believers would be co-heirs, co-members of the body of Christ, fellow partakers of the Messianic promise because of their faith in Jesus at justification and union identification with Him through the baptism of the Spirit. And they'd be doing that, they'd be co-heirs, co-members of the body of Christ, and co-partakers of the Messianic promise with Jewish believers. That wasn't known to Old Testament saints. In other words, we're on equal footing with them, these Jewish believers. This is fantastic, right? So we're part of the new humanity that's going to dispossess Satan and the fallen angels who are the temporary rulers of this world. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 3, he says to the Corinthians, we weren't exactly spiritual giants. Don't you know you're going to judge angels? So you understand why the Satan wages war against you and I? You want, to why, you want to know why you have tough, you have problems in your marriage or financially or you have problems in your life with uh, whatever, relationships, or just it's, it never goes easy for you? I know I can say that. Uh, it, was, it would have been a lot easier if I never became a Christian and specific, specifically didn't become a pastor that's actually teaching this stuff and trying to live it out in his own life. That created a lot of problems for me, but I wouldn't have it any other way. The world's going to hate me and hated Jesus. They crucified him. They killed apostles, right? They, the only one they couldn't kill and they tried to kill was John. And uh, so many martyrs have followed, and there's a reason why. Satan is your enemy, and he knows what this says, and he doesn't like it. And he's going to fight to the very end, and he's not going to give up his territory. But when we come back with Christ at his second advent, to end the 70th week of Daniel in the times of the Gentiles, and to start the kingdom of the earth, he's going to, and the angels that follow him will be removed from this earth for a thousand years, and we're going to reign. So uh, we need to understand the importance of our justification because it resulted in us through the baptism of the Spirit being united to Christ and identified with Him. This is the basis for our spiritual life, okay? And it's the basis for this unity experientially in the body of Christ, okay? That's what Paul's concerned about in this letter. And he talks more about it when we get to Ephesians 4 where he talks about he wants this unity talking about the unity of the Father, there's one Spirit, one Father, you know, one Lord, one baptism, and all of that is because he's saying there's unity in the Godhead and there's unity in the body of Christ through the baptism of the Spirit. It will be in a perfective sense of the resurrection body. I want it now in an experiential sense between the, the members of the body of Christ with each other and the two wings of the church, the Jewish and Gentile wings of the church. I want that as well, but it's going to come through the practice of the command to love one another 
and also appropriating by faith our union identification with Christ and considering ourselves dead to the sin nature and the cosmic system of Satan and which we used to be enslaved to and alive to God and raised with, uh, raised at his, seated at his right hand. Why? Because we, that's how God views us. So we have to, it takes faith to believe that. Do you believe that? Because if you do, it'll change the way you change your life, how you look at yourself. You'll define yourself not according to your money or your relationships or your likes on Facebook. You'll you'll define yourself because of who God made you to be in Christ, and that uh, you are His son, His child, adopted Roman style at justification, as we talked about in Ephesians one. It's going to change how you look at yourself and how you treat other people, and uh, and you'll look at the world a lot differently. You'll change your viewpoint of things. And uh, that's what you want because we're to, our minds are, need to be, you know, renewed to the what the Spirit's teaching us in the Scriptures. So uh, we got a lot more ground to cover. We'll pick this up on Saturday at 11 a.m. Central Standard Time, Lord willing, unless the rapture happens or the Lord takes me out. So good to have you with us. And uh, I hope this lesson was a blessing to you. So let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for another day of Bible doctrine, the Word of God. I pray the Spirit would do a mighty work to His people, all of us here today. And thank you for everyone that's listening and watching uh, live at a later date through the recordings on the various websites and podcasts and media platforms that you're given to us. I pray this lesson be a great blessing to your people. Guide us in the application of these things. And I pray that we would have uh, unity experientially in the church and uh, in our day and age, in our local assembly and, and, uh, and around the world and around this country. So I just pray that ultimately you'd be glorified in your son, Jesus Christ, through the Spirit. In his name we pray. Amen.